Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Adria Breyer, a member of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and chair of this program. I'm an integrative international cancer consultant, and my mission for over 15 years has been to use the platform of the Commonwealth Club to bring forward people like Dr. Abrams who bring you lesser-known information that you don't usually hear in the media. I'm going to give you a little bit of her background, and it has to be a little because it's pages. Dr. Abrams has a family practice in integrative medicine with a specialty in integrative health, relationships, sexuality, and she's the author of her new book, which you can purchase outside, BodyWise, Discovering Your Body's Intelligence for Lifelong Health and Healing. She runs the award-winning Santa Cruz Integrative Medicine Clinic and has been called the best doctor in Santa Cruz County every year for the past 10. It took me a year to get her here. Rachel teaches and speaks widely as an expert consultant for media. She has a number of other books, including Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. I would really encourage that since our relationships tend to be breaking up. It'll foster conversation. It's an easy read and it's well worth getting. The Man's Guide to Women. We don't even have to go there. That's a good one. (laughs) The Multi-Orgasmic Woman, The Multi-Orgasmic Couple. I'm not going there either. And the audiobook, Taoist Sexual Secrets. Her website is drrachel.com. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram, and her blogs at thriveglobal.com and Rodale Wellness. Thank you so much for driving up here at night in Santa Cruz and fitting us into your busy schedule. <laughs> Dr. Rachel. So I'm thrilled to be in San Francisco. It is my favorite city on earth. I don't live here, but I would like to. So if anybody wants to, you know, rent out their condo, trade for a beach house, you can just let me know afterwards. Um, I uh, am just hot off the press being in Costa Rica, teaching down there um, with some pretty phenomenal people. One of them was Christiana Figueres, and she is, this is my husband Doug in the back here. <laughs> it's okay, you can wave. Um, and uh, she, he is her literary agent. She's about to publish a book. She was the woman who was able to get the Paris Climate Agreement passed. She's a phenomenon. Her father was the president of Costa Rica. Anyway, I, we got to be on a boat with her. Out going out to a pink island on the last full moon, which was the first full moon of the next decade. And she said on that trip, it's so appropriate that we're all here because we literally have one decade. We've got 10 years to do what needs to be done so that we stay alive on the planet. And I don't say that to be terrifying. I say it as a clarion call. There is a reason that around World War II, where people had to make very difficult decisions, that that generation is called the greatest generation, right? It's because they were called to acting out of their best hearts, out of their best minds, you know, at their best abilities for what was necessary to create a world that people could live in safely, right? And we are called now, now to do each of us whatever we can do. So this talk is my thinking about how I, as a physician, can speak to each one of you about how to change our thinking and our being to be who we need to be to bring the change about. 
So one of the things that I was thinking as I was getting ready today, um, I was thinking about that quote from Albert Einstein, which turns out, by the way, not to be a quote. I did research this. He didn't actually say it, but he said things like it, and it's attributed to him. But that we cannot solve the problems in front of us with the thinking that created the problems in the first place, right? That we actually have to shift who we are. We have to shift how we think and what we believe in order to approach these fairly large scale issues that we need to approach. Um, and I was thinking that this talk I'm giving feels to me like uh, addressing three of these ways that we think, some of the basic ways that we think that prevent us from getting good solutions. So the first one is that believing that, or even if we don't believe it, acting as if our mind and our heart and our body are not connected. It's a crazy notion I mean, your mind and your heart are your body, first of all, so that's nuts. But, you know, our, our culture, our religions um, have been teaching that for a long time. And I know that my friend here who uh, introduced me is all about how do we connect the mind, the heart, and the body for healing. Um, so that the mind and the heart and the body are separate. That we're really truly separate from one another. That's, in, in a way, a uniquely North American concept also completely incorrect. I'll talk about it in terms of the research um, that we now have about neurobiology and how each of us is deeply connected to the people around us and, and that we need each other. And the third one is that we are somehow over here and nature is over there. Like there's the stand of trees and the fox and the deer and that's nature. And I'm, I'm over here looking at nature when in fact I am nature through and through. I am my own ecosystem. Some of you have probably heard this, but there are six to 10 times the number of bacterial cells in your body as there are human cells. So really, not only your nature, you're like a nature preserve. You're your own little, you're just a walking lovely bag for all the bacteria that are thriving in your body. You yourself are an ecosystem. And that's an important part of uh, what we think about in integrative or holistic medicine. How do we treat you like an ecosystem as a live being, as nature itself filled with other live beings? And how do we balance that out for you? So when I started thinking about these concepts in health, I actually was really inspired by this idea of right relationship, which is what I want to start talking about. I'm going to point my pointer in the right direction. No. There we go. Thank you. Um, and this is a, a definition that was created by Aldo Leopold in the 1940s. He was an ecologist. And when I think about right relationship, what is my relationship with my own body, with my own nature? What is my relationship with other humans? It's my relationship with other people. And what is my relationship with the natural world? And how do I get into right relationship in a, in a way that allows me to be healthy and well and the planet to be healthy and well? Because surprise, those are the same thing. What you do for yourself that helps you be healthy and well almost all, always makes the planet more healthy and well. You know, this idea that you can put Roundup on your grass in the yard and then it doesn't track into the house and into your kitchen and on the floor and into your food and into your body because you touch it is ludicrous, right? Everything we do to the earth affects us. It's one ecosystem. So he talks about right relationship as when you do something that is right, when I act in a way that is right, it preserves the integrity, 
the resilience and the beauty of all life. He actually calls it the commonwealth of life, which is particularly appropriate here. (laughs) Preserves the integrity, the resilience, and the beauty of all life. And this, in my mind, is a wonderful definition for health. Because as a doctor, my job is to help you preserve the integrity, resilience, and beauty of your cells, of your organs, of your whole living system, and really of your relationships as well. We'll talk about that. Oh, I did it. Wait, it's too quick. So right relationship, I think of as being right relationship with the self, right relationship with other peoples, and right relationship with the natural world. I wanted to start out by telling you a story. This is a patient of mine, Antonia. She's a very smart lady. I have a feeling some of you will relate to her. She is in her mid-40s. She works at a large technology company in Silicon Valley. Uh, She's a creative there. She commutes from Santa Cruz, where I live, which means she's driving an hour and a half each way over Highway 17 every day. She has two kids in high school. They both have special learning issues. One of them is dyslexic. The other one is on the autistic spectrum. Um, She's married. She's been married for 25 years. Her husband um, is in construction, is depressed, and has struggled with alcoholism on and off their entire marriage. She comes to see me because she developed such severe panic attacks on Highway 17 that she can't go to work. And I like to talk about this as your body talking to you right? That's what my whole book body wise is about. How is your body talking to you? What's it trying to tell you? Her body basically put its foot down and said, no, no. Because in addition to having a panic attack, she had migraines. She had insomnia. She had anxiety. She had depression. She had irritable bowel syndrome, right? This is a classic person who walks into my office. Um, And it was caused by the environment in which she found herself in. So we as individualists think, oh, she's making bad choices, right? She needs to make better choices and then she'll be better. And I just want to say she's not alone. That in our country, in the United States, one in five adults have anxiety disorder. So you know how the U.S. likes to be number one? (laughs) We're number one. We're number one in anxiety. We win. We're the most anxious country in the world. More than Afghanistan, more than Iraq, more than Somalia, more than a lot of other places that got a lot more to worry about than we do. I'm not saying we don't have problems. We do. But this is one of them, right? We've created a culture that isn't friendly to the human organism. And the millennial generation is the most anxious generation that has ever lived. And I take care of a lot of kids in the next generation, high school students, junior high students. They're going to make the millennials look calm. It is not getting better. It's getting worse. We have a continued decline in life expectancy. So in this country, and actually in most places in the world, life expectancy increased every year until two years ago. And two years ago, life expectancy began to decrease in the United States. People born today, like my kids, won't live as long as I do. And this has mostly been because of chronic disease, because of our diet, because of obesity, because of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, stress, anxiety, all of those things that cause uh, disease in the body. Well, 
those things actually stayed stable. Good news. Obesity stabilized, diabetes stabilized. That's great. It's still at ridiculous levels, but it's better or it's improving. It's not getting worse. Who knows why life expectancy decreased this year? Suicides. Suicides and overdoses. Suicides and overdoses. So our threats are in a way from within our society. Antonia and we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a place suffering from all these issues. Americans know and trust many fewer neighbors than in the 1970s. So the 1970s was my childhood, the early 1970s. And, you know, I took off on my bicycle in the morning and I ran around town. I went to piano lessons and I went to the swimming pool and I was eight or something. And mom was like, be home by, by sundown. Right. That, that was my big, and it was, it was fine parenting. It was reasonable parenting. The world is really different now. And we don't know each other. We're losing community. Uh, Doug has an author who was the head of the National Institute for Mental Health, who was in charge of raising and spending millions and millions of dollars on studies on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. And he's writing a book right now, which is really addressing the fact that we've pretty much had a failure of psychiatry to be able to treat our increasing anxiety and depression. And his solution for this is community, community. People know you, people take care of you. I was an eight year old riding around, but I wasn't alone. People knew me in that town. They knew who I was. I had other aunties and uncles and grandparents and, you know, everybody was looking out for everybody else. It gives you a sense of safety, a real sense of safety. And that is also a bit on the decline. We're also more removed from the natural world than any population that has ever lived. So just to illustrate this, in Japan, there are half a million young men under 40 who are called hikikomori. They have a name for it. They live in one room and they never leave. I assume someone feeds them and it's probably their mom. Um, but their only identity is online. To get the diagnosis, you have to have not left your room for six months. So this is the canary in the coal mine. We've got young people so anxious, so unhappy, so, so unable to relate to human beings face to face instead of digitally that they can't actually be with other humans. This is, an, uh, this is actually a crisis for all of us. So what are we made for? I want you to just think about this for a second. Your physiology, this beautiful body that you're in, the physiology is 10,000 years old, okay? And the physiology was brilliantly created for creatures that sleep when it's dark, are active most of the day. Are, are having to work hard to get food and they're mostly eating a lot of fiber and not a lot of sugar and, you know, occasional animal protein and a lot of vegetables, right? Um, we are meant to be living in communities of 150 to 1,000 people. So human civilizations until relatively recently were between 100 and 1,000 people. Can you uh, imagine how different it would be to know about the tragedies and the losses and the celebrations of 100 to 120 people or to 1,000 people, completely different idea, right? We know about 7 billion people and counting all the time. So 
we have to create an environment that is friendly for the physiology we have. There hasn't been much change. And we're living in a world where we're in wrong relationship with ourselves, with our bodies, with other people, with the natural environment. We have to figure out how to be in right relationship with that physiology. And that's really what this talk is about. So this is actually my daughter drew this. This is Antonia. Just is showing you. Has anyone ever felt like this? I feel like half my life was like this. Um, you know, she's trying to balance everything and she's hardly doing it, right? And what she needs is companionship, a friend, a little bit of nature, some time off, a little more reasonable work schedule, right? If we could deliver that environment for her, she wouldn't be anxious and having panic attacks and depressed. Now, I'm not saying never use medication. I do use it sometimes, but it is there to decrease symptoms so we can do the work that's necessary to heal the body, right? And so Antonia came to see me. I immediately got her into counseling. Uh, she started working with her husband. She wasn't sleeping, um, in part because she was in her mid to late forties and perimenopause and having hot flashes in part because she was anxious in part because when I asked her, well, when you paid attention to your intuition, to what your body was telling you, what do you feel when you go to bed, when you walk in the bedroom? She's like, I'm anxious. It's like, you're more anxious. Yeah. She's anxious because she's sleeping in the bed with a man with whom she's struggling. She has a rough relationship. He's drinking again. They're fighting. She is not relaxed when she's trying to go to sleep. So part of our intervention for her was she had a, another room with a window. It was like a closet, but it was it had a window. And we set up a bed for her in there. Separate bed. Quiet. Dark. She brought some of the things she values in there with her. Um, and her sleep improved dramatically. We did a few other things too, treated with some hormones for menopause. Um, we used some herbs that were safe. But just improving her sleep made a massive difference in how she felt. And that had nothing to do with pharmaceuticals. So I want to start out by talking about having right relationship with self. This is really what my book, Body Wise, is all about. How do we get into right relationship and have integrity, have uh, resilience and beauty with our own bodies, with what we say to ourselves, with how we behave? So body intelligence, which is what I talk about in that book, is the ability to listen to your body's signals and pay attention in order to make good decisions. So we used to do this, meaning a thousand years ago, and many people's today still, um, without really having to think about it. We didn't have to relearn it. It was just basic to our survival. You had to know if you were trying to track animals when you were hunting, or you had to find plants that were safe to eat, or you had to pay attention to the wind and the weather because you had to know uh, what was going to happen in terms of a storm, your senses were wide open all the time. We have dialed down our sensory world in order to handle the overstimulation that's all around us. But has anyone ever found, like if you went on vacation, I said I was just in Costa Rica in the jungle, but you went somewhere that was really quiet and there was no digital media and how different it was, what you heard and what you smelled and what you saw, right? It's like your whole world opens up. And has anyone ever flown back into the airport and been like, oh my God, <laughs> right? Overwhelmed. It's, it's, it's amazing what's possible. So this is what, for example, animal trackers use. 
So if you watch them, it's kind of remarkable because they are, they're, they're looking for detailed signs. Like is a twig broken or is there a paw print in the, in the dirt, but they're also feeling inside their body, their own intuition about where do they think that animal is? What did it look like? What way was it turning when it hit that branch? It's this deeply body intuitive connection with the natural world that they're using to, to track animals, which humans have been doing for ever. The reason it's important to listen to your body intelligence is like my patient Antonia, if you don't listen to your body, like, I don't know, you, uh, you're doing a job and every time you go to work, you feel this little tightness in your gut and you really hate it and you don't pay attention to it. And, uh, like Antonia, uh, what a friend of mine said is if your body wants to tell you something, it'll give you a signal. If you don't listen, it'll give you a little shove. And then if you really don't listen, you're going to get a bitch slap from the universe, right? So this was Antonia's bitch slap from the universe, the panic attack on the highway. Now I can't even go to work. I can't even get there because I can't, I can no longer drive because of how anxious I am. The reason it's important to listen to that is we don't want to get to that point, right? Um, I know we talk about cancer quite a bit up here from the stage. I will never, ever, ever say that someone is responsible for their own cancer. I think that's cruel. Um, and shit happens in life, excuse my language, but, um, I do think that sometimes things happen randomly and cancer is sometimes that bitch slap from the universe for people who need to shift or they need to change or they need to transform in some area of their life. If we listen sooner, then we can actually avoid some of the bad things that happen to us and we can guide our healthcare practitioners. And this makes us better at everything we do. It makes us better leaders. It makes us better managers. It makes us more productive. It makes us better speakers and influencers because when you're in your body and you're actually listening to your body, you have more power in the world. And maybe even more importantly than that, it makes us happy. It makes us happy. If you're inside of your body and you're actually listening to what your body's telling you, you get access to more joy. You get access to more play. You get access to more pleasure, right? This is a much more dialed up way to live. I often say, you know, emotion has a, a volume dial. And if you've had painful experiences, you may have turned down your volume. Like, I don't want to feel because it was too painful. It's a good way to get through a traumatic time and event. There's nothing wrong with that. The issue is when many of us stay dialed down and when you're dialed down, you don't get joy either. If you turn up the volume, yeah, you're going to feel pain, but you also get to experience ecstasy, right? The fun parts of being a human animal. So we're going to do a little exercise. This was uh, taught to me by Julie Gottman, who's one of my co-authors in a couple of the books that I've um, written, and we're going to practice having body intelligence. So I want you to close your eyes and take a deep breath for me. Put your hands on your belly, get settled in your chair, put your feet on the floor. Deep breath in through your nose and out. And another deep breath in and out. And I want you to let come into your mind something that you love in an uncomplicated way, not a person, but let's say kittens or sunsets or the ocean something you love just without restraint in, it, in, in this very simple way. 
And as soon as something comes to mind, if several things come to mind, just pick one. As soon as something comes to mind, I want you to begin to repeat to yourself over and over in your head, I hate that thing. My apologies, we're not going to do this very long. I hate sunsets. I hate roses. I hate puppies. Whatever your thing is, I hate chocolate. I hate it. As you say it over and over again, notice what you're feeling in your body. What sensations do you have in your face, in your shoulders, in your chest, in your belly? What sensations do you feel while you say, I hate this thing that you love? And now open your eyes. What did you sense? What did you feel? Yes. Constriction in your throat. Great. Thank you. Yes. Heaviness. Where did you feel heaviness? All your whole body. In your head, it sounds like. Yeah. Furrowed brow and confusion. Confusion and furrowed brow. Good. Um, Gut, um, internal body kind of pulling inward. Mm -hmm. Gut sort of clenching and pulling inward. Okay. Somebody else? Yeah. I was kind of feeling myself getting more and more accepted. Oh, that's so interesting. So the thing that you love, you really love, was moving further away from you. All right. Anybody else? Yeah. Nausea. Nausea. Yes. Tightening. tightening and tingling. So we've got tightness and tingling and pressure and nausea. And, you know, we're kind of in this posture, right? This is a protected posture because you are lying to your body, right? And your body is going, no, no, right? So this is your body saying, no. Okay, so let's close our eyes. Now we're going to have our body saying, yes, this will be more fun for you. Okay. So over and over again in your head, I love fettuccine Alfredo, whatever your thing is. I love bunnies. I love waterfalls. I love tropical fruit. Whatever you love, I love kitties. And as you're saying that, I mean, I can feel how different just the room feels from up here. But what do you sense in your body? What sensations do you note in your body? And go ahead and open your eyes again. Yes, go ahead. Opening like this. Yes. Starting to smile more. Starting to smile more. Somebody else. One more time. Release. Release. So a little lightness. Yeah. Nice. Everything relaxed. Anybody else? How about in the chest or the belly? Yeah. Breath deepened. Good. Yes. Tingling sensation. Where was it? In your legs. Nice. You're right here. It felt like my body was transcending. Yeah. Body was transcending. You felt light, kind of lightness, or like you're moving upward, right? So everything here is lightness, tingling, moving. It's this posture, right? It's completely. It's the opposite posture, right? This is the yes. I mean, it's a vulnerable posture, but it's a celebratory, I feel safe posture. So these are simple body signals. Like, has anyone ever, I'm in the process of interviewing for um, a new nurse in my practice right now, and has anybody ever either met a, a new friend or interviewed somebody for a position and just had this sort of bad feeling? 
despite the fabulous resume or the fabulous recommendation, right? Just bad feeling. Anybody? Yes. Did anyone hire them anyway? No. Good job. Well, I have. Thank you. Thank you. I have. How did it go? Not well. It didn't go well for me either. Um, because your body knows things, right? You have this gut intuition. There's an incredible array of nerves around your abdomen. This is the abdominal brain down here. So when we have these body sensations, it's really our, our body drawing from all of our sensory input, all of our experience, all the micro expressions on this person's face, right? To give us information that isn't necessarily in our consciousness. Very important. And as I was saying about our friend Antonia, she had that intuition. She needed to not be sleeping in the same bed with her husband. And it seemed to work for her when we got her out. So when I talk about uh, body health, and I talk about this quite a bit in Body Wise, my book, the five fundamentals of health for everybody, and this is not news, this is not groundbreaking, but it is kind of how I think about it, are eat, eating, what you eat, what you put in, everything you put in, sleep, move. So Antonia is commuting an hour and a half on each end. She's got two kids with learning disabilities. Do you think she is exercising? She's not exercising at all. I will just tell you not at all because on the weekends she's so wiped out. She can barely function. Um, love, love turns out to be more important than anything else up here. It is more important in terms of your health and well-being, in terms of your lifespan and how well you are during that lifespan than what you eat, whether you exercise, whether you sleep, much more important than everything else. We're wired to be with other people or animals, by the way, we'll talk about that too, um, and finding purpose, which is also really important for longevity. So the second piece, so there's finding right relationship with the body. And then how do we get into right relationship with other people? So as I was saying, it's tremendously important for your well-being. We now have so much research demonstrating the importance of community, um, uh, well, of, of many levels of relationship, of personal love relationships, yes, but also friendships and also even just casual communities. So if you are, the more communities you're a part of, it could be your bowling league, it could be a book club, it could be your church or synagogue or uh, a temple, it, it can be really any kind of community, but the more communities you're a part of, the better immunity you have, the better your immune system functions. So they did this study where they looked at community involvement and then they infected everybody with a rhinovirus in their nose. It's a common cold. Um, and substantially less infection rates in the people who had the highest number of communities. Amazing. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. There are many ways to have uh, love, and I'm not particular, you know, including animals. So, and, and why is it so good for us? It's because when we touch other people 
or animals for that matter, animals that we love, our oxytocin goes up. This is a hormone that causes, well, it's actually used in childbirth and in breastfeeding, but it's calming. It reduces our cortisol. It helps uh, cellular recovery and adrenal function. It increases prolactin, which is another calming hormone, that in, and in, oxytocin increases affection. So once you have affection, your oxytocin goes up. You want more affection. There's a positive feedback loop uh, to it. Um, it decreases pain. People are able to undergo much more um, painful events which, with less distress and with less stress response when they're holding the hand of someone that they care about. Huge impact. Petting your animal friend uh, also does all these wonderful things for you. And in fact, your heartbeat, your heart rhythm will actually synchronize with your dog or your cat or whoever you're petting when you're with them. Isn't that amazing? So cool. Um, so we are all very connected and even where you're sitting right now in your seat, you're the, the energy field of your heart. So your heart is beating. So it's actually creating an energy field around it. Anything moving uh, rhythmically does that goes like three feet in either direction, which is why one of the many reasons that if you hang out with people that are depressed, you're way more likely to be depressed. If you hang out with people who are joyful and creative, you're more likely to be joyful and creative. We have this impact on one another without even knowing it. You know, this lovely woman in the front row here doesn't know me. We've never met before. But how I'm feeling, her body feels. She can actually, she has mere neurons in her brain. My energy field is interacting with her energy field. Even though we don't know each other and we're just standing in front of each other, we are still affecting each other profoundly. This is how we're made. It's because we're pack animals. We're not wool, lone wolves. We're not leopards. We are, we're like packs of dogs. And that's how we survived for millennia. Speaking of that 10,000-year-old uh, Physiology. So we are programmed to actually be in community with other people. And part of our issue these days is not enough community. I spend a lot of time talking to people about how they can connect with other people and get outside of these cages that we build for ourselves and then stay inside of. We depend on the other in order for us to be fully who we are. If you build the real concept of, you see, we, then all real harmony develops. After all, none of us came into the world uh, on our own. <laughs> <laughs> One individual, no matter how powerful, how clever, cannot survive without other human being. Let's wake up to the fact that we have been created for this being family. <laughs> and that is how we flourish. Human being, no need introduction. Human brothers, sisters, whether you know or not, smile. I didn't get a chance to introduce that to you first before it went on. But so this is Father Desmond Tutu, who's the Archbishop of uh, South Africa. Many of you are probably familiar with. He is um, one of the people responsible for the fall of apartheid in South Africa. And the Dalai Lama, who probably needs no introduction, but he's the spiritual leader of Tibet. Um, and that is a clip from a filming uh, of the 
uh, my husband Doug did uh, for the Book of Joy um, back in Dharamsala now three years ago. Uh, and I got to be there for that. I've been Father Tutu's integrative doctor for many years now. Um, I love these two because they're such a wonderful example of human-to-human interaction and love. And it's broad, Right. They actually love all of humanity, and that's not easy to do, right? (laughs) Okay, so this is shamelessly borrowed uh, from Father Tutu uh, in his book, uh, The Book of Forgiving with his daughter and pa, Um, and also um, uh, the the steps in Buddhism of coming to peace and forgiveness. So I started thinking about, okay, if we're not in right relationship with our bodies, with other people, or with the natural world, how do we get there? So this was my attempt to kind of build some of those steps. So the first step is perspective. So if we think about Antonia, part of what she had to do is look at her life and step back a little bit from it and go, okay, how can I, you know, see this with a little, a little bit of objectivity? Obviously it's, if it's your own life, it's a little bit challenging and and notice all the things that I point out to her how many hours she's working, how little she's sleeping, everything she's trying to do for her kids, that she's the primary breadwinner, that she can't count on her her husband to help her that much with that because he's struggling with alcoholism, that they're fighting, um, that she never sees her friends, that she's disconnected from her community, that she never exercises, and that she's never outside, right? The second step is acceptance of what is. So, for example, she she has been trying to get her husband to stop drinking for a long time. And she finally had to come to that point of going, he may never stop drinking. It's not that he doesn't love me. It's not that he doesn't adore his children. He's struggling with his addiction and I can't control that. But can I live with it anymore? Maybe not. Maybe I'm done, right? So acceptance of what is. He may never get clean and sober. Given that that's true, what are my choices? Compassion compassion for herself in this situation, compassion for her husband and his, his great tries and many tries to get clean and sober and be present for his family and, and earn a living and all the things he's trying to do. Compassion for her kids, compassion for her boss at work who is hard on her and driving her hard inside the giant corporation that she's a part of. And most importantly, compassion for herself and then discernment. So discernment is that last step of, okay, given all of that in this particular relationship, am I going to continue? Am I going to figure out how to stay connected? She's been being connected, trying to be connected with her husband for the last 25 years. Or am I going to let it go? And we all have to do that. There is no one in this room who hasn't had a relationship that did not contribute to your well-being. Am I right? a friendship, a family member, somebody. And you really have to ask yourself, I had a patient, um, I want to tell you, really have to ask yourself whether that relationship is one you want to encourage. I had a patient who came to see me with um, abdominal pain because she already saw her regular doctor and her regular doctor said, oh, you know, it's in this location. Maybe it's your gallbladder. Let's get an ultrasound and some blood work. Blood work was totally normal. She wasn't having inflammation, but she had gallstones reasonable diagnosis for the doctor who said, you need to have your gallbladder out. But I live in Santa Cruz and my practice specializes in people who don't want to do what their doctors say (laughs) pretty much, which 
I understand. Um, and she didn't want to have surgery. So she came to see me to see if I could get her out of having surgery. So her, when we talked about it in more detail and I got the whole story of her life, we finally found out that she only has pain after she talks to her mother on the phone. I'm just saying. So my prescription for her literally was not to talk to her mom for a month and she didn't and she had no pain. So then we had to figure out how am I going to, you know, how are we going to help her be in relationship? She had a, her mother was physically abusive. Her mother was emotionally abusive when she was a child. She was an only child. She felt a lot of obligation to do something for her elderly mother who had no one else. Um, but she had to do it in a way that didn't cause her pain. And she had a pretty good body feedback system for doing so. So she, in, she did initiate contact again. She set ground rules. As soon as her mother got abusive, she hung up the phone. When she didn't do it fast enough, she got abdominal pain again. Right? Discernment. We all have to do it. So right relationship with nature, I'm really excited to talk about this because there's just so many beautiful things to say about it. And of all the areas I've talked about, this is the one that has the newest sort of most burgeoning uh, research about it. So this is a slide you're never supposed to make in a presentation, right? (laughs) Don't make a crowded slide with too many studies. Too bad. I wanted just to point out how many things are on the slide, right? This is uh, published in 2013, and it was uh, a review study of all the studies that have been done on the benefits of the exposure of nature to your health. And it goes on and on and on. Increased self-esteem, improved mood, reduced anger and frustration, psychological well-being, reduced anxiety. Tons of psychological benefits. And then better performance, better uh, uh, productivity, improved academic performance and learning and ability to perform tasks and cognitive function, blah, blah, blah. Increased spiritual well-being. A, a huge number of positive physiologic benefits. So the kicker here is reduced cardiovascular, respiratory disease, and long-term illness. That pretty much sums it all up. And then this last part, which I think is really hopeful and actually kind of exciting, uh, facilitated social interaction, enables social empowerment, reduced crime rates, reduced violence, enables interracial interaction, social cohesion, and social support. That's huge. That is huge. So what does that mean about the fact that our inner cities often have no nature? What are we doing to the human animal? It's not normal. It's not normal for our being and it doesn't help us do anything we do. Well, Doug was just telling me on the way up here that um, he's working with a new author who has a study out who uh, was telling us about a study that if you live on a street that, and, and they're looking at multiple neighborhoods controlling for socioeconomics, for race, for class, for education, um, and for health. But that if you live on a street that has 10 more trees than the street that this other group of people in the control group live on, your physiology, like when we look at your aging according to physiologic indicators, your physiology is seven years younger. 10 trees, seven years. Seven years. 
So we need to live in cities. We need to live in cities so we can leave the natural world alone. I'm not suggesting we all move to the country. That won't work. But in our cities, we have to have nature. We need nature. The degree of depression for somebody living in an apartment who can see one tree outside their window is substantially less. One tree. It's a big deal. Oh, and I'm just going to go forward a little bit. This is a great video. You can look it up online. This is the, the honey uh, bird. Honey bird. Help me. Honey, honey guide. Thank you. I just had one of those moments. Honey guide. So this bird uh, is remarkable in that, um, and this is a slide from Tanzania in Africa and the Hadza tribe. So this is a hunter-gatherer tribe that still lives in communion with the land. And as they say, they never go hungry because they've got nature's supermarket all around them. So they gather their food every day. They don't farm so that nobody argues over what they have. They share everything. And this bird is in their environment. And the bird has evolved over time. It has calls for other honey guide birds, but it has a very specific call for humans. So the bird flies around and calls the humans. And the humans have a special call for the bird. And so the humans make the call for the bird. The bird makes the call for the humans. Then they find each other. The bird, meanwhile, has sussed out where the honey is because the bird can find it. It's in the trees. So the bird finds the honey, the bird, and then it finds the humans. And then the humans call, find the bird, and then they follow the bird to where the honey is. Then the humans smoke the bees out, take the honey out. And what do you think the first thing they do is? They give it to the bird. They give it to the bird. The bird digests the honeycomb. The bird digests the honey and the bird eats the grubs in the honeycomb. So this is what we're created for. We are not adjacent to nature. We are nature itself. We're supposed to be a part of nature. So I want you to imagine, close your eyes and imagine you're in a forest. You live in a place that has tremendous forests. So imagine you're in Muir Woods or wherever you like to go best, even in Golden Gate Park, and that you're looking up at those trees and you're smelling it and the leaves and the needles. So when you are in a virgin forest where you are standing under one footfall is 10 kilometers of mycorrhizal network. So this is a network of the tree roots working in, tan in tandem with the uh, fungus roots, with the mushroom roots under the ground. And under one little footfall, 10 kilometers of that communication system. It is a neural network underground. And those trees actually communicate with something that looks just like glutamate, which is a neurotransmitter in the human brain. And they tell each other things through that. And they have sonar where they can find water. And their leaves release pheromones, just like our armpits and our sweat, so that the trees can communicate with each other. You can go ahead and open your eyes now if you want to. So that if a pest comes into the forest and starts to eat the tree... The tree sends a signal through the mycorrhizal network, through its pheromones downwind, uh, to tell the other trees that there are pests. And they all upregulate their tannins, those bitter elements in uh, vegetables and plants, so that they're less delicious for the insects. So in Canada, when the Japanese beetle came through, the virgin forests four times as likely to survive as the forests that had been logged 
and didn't have this intact communication network. If you're a baby tree in a virgin forest and you have a mother tree, meaning a big old tree that is interconnected, you're four times as likely to survive because that tree actually sends carbon through that mycorrhizal network to the baby trees to feed them when they need nourishment. The trees and the plants, and they're not just connected to their own species. They're connected to the other trees too. So the trees under the ground are deeply connected. We are deeply connected with each other, as we talked about. And I want you to guess what we're looking at right here. So who has a guess of what this first photo is on the left? Neural network, good guess. Galaxy is closer. This is dark matter. So this is what dark matter looks like in the universe. And look at how similar that network is to the next photo. Who knows what the next photo is, the green one? Looks like dendrites. It's not. A delta. It's a river delta. It's a river delta from space. And the next one? Tree roots, right? And the next one? Good guess. Someone said sperm. Yes. It's a neuron. It's a single neuron from the brain. So nature is nature is nature. It is reproduced in the macro. It is reproduced in the micro. We are all interconnected like these interconnected networks and not just in the ways we can see. And it is that interconnectedness and that knowledge and, and functioning as if we're interconnected that allows us to be well. It's the overcoming the lie that our mind and our body are not connected and the lie that we are not connected to one another or that we're not connected to the natural world. If you're feeling unconnected to nature, many of us are because we live in a world where you don't have to be that connected, nature bathing forest bathing in uh, Japanese culture, wonderful way to actually help with your cortisol levels and your adrenal function and your health and your well-being. Grounding and planning, getting your hands in the dirt, ancient human activity, immersion in natural water. You got a lot of it here. I know the ocean's cold. Still good for you. Stargazing, spending time with animals, gathering around fire, another ancient human activity music and dance, self-expression, sex and affection, another natural human activity. All of these things bring you back into your body and into connection with other people. So I want you to actually take a minute with somebody next to you. And I want you to think about a relationship in your life. It doesn't have to be your mom. It could be a simpler relationship. It could be somebody at work. A relationship that doesn't feel like it's in right relationship. And we're just going to take two minutes and talk with each other about it. Okay? So turn to somebody next to you. Ideally, we can be in twos, but if you have to be in a three because that's what it's like, that's fine. And please don't start talking quite yet because I want to give you instructions. I love that people love each other. Okay. So I know this is brief. We don't have a lot of time, but I want you to actually take a minute to, in that relationship, give a little perspective. If you were stepping back from it, what do you see from both perspectives? Number two, 
stating it as it is, not as you want it to be, not like you wish it were, not like you're trying to make it be, but what is it like right now? Compassion for yourself and the other person and then discernment. You can do that or not do that, but I just want you to, for a moment, you're going to take a minute each, raise your hand if you're sitting to the left of the twosome. You're going to listen first. You're going to listen first. The other person's going to talk first. Okay. Ready and go. First person is about halfway done. First person halfway done. If you're in a threesome, first person is going to wrap up. First person finishing up. I know it's short. First person finishing up. Second person starting. And second person beginning to finish up. Thank each other for sharing. I love that you love each other. It's so wonderful. And my apologies that that's so brief. I wanted to give you a taste of it, but we don't have time for a lot of it. Um, And I'm open to hearing feedback from anybody afterwards also about it. So I just wanted to finish up um, by saying that I think that when we get in right relationship with our bodies and we get into, and this, this is never perfect, obviously, but in right relationship with each other, and we find our place in nature, that we all have the power to do what needs to be done to bring our planet uh, to a place where we can still live. And we have one decade. We have one precious decade. This is our moment. This is our opportunity to be our strong, best selves and move everybody with us toward health and well-being. I am happy to hear any questions. How do we change a relationship when it takes two to tango? Yeah, well, the first rule is you can't change the other person. You can never change the other person. Talk to people who've been around the block in terms of long-term relationships or multiple relationships. You just, you've, after a while, uh, you start to understand that it is impossible as hard as you try to change the other person. So you, one of the things that I think you have to have in a relationship for it to be longstanding, at least an intimate relationship, like a committed partnership or a marriage is somebody who is interested in uh, change and development. So, you know, there's a lot of, th- you don't need everything in, in a committed uh, partner. You must get things from other people, but one of the things you need is an ability to talk and to, uh, to shift and change together. Now, they may not change in the way you want them to change. We don't get to control that. Um, we can only do what we can do for us. So it's just like, you know, my patient with the, with the uh, partner with an addiction. She can't make him stop drinking. She can't, right? She has to do what she can do for her. Yeah. Do you have a dialogue or terminology you can use so people don't feel judged when you're trying to communicate? Yeah. Well, I don't have, uh, I'm not going to give you specific words, but here's my suggestion, um, which is <laughs> you, you want to try to communicate when you're not judging them. 
I say that from personal experience. My husband's not even in the room anymore. Um, but it is unsuccessful if you try to be nice, but on the inside, you're like, you're such an idiot. God, you know, if only you would blah, 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 blah. Um, generally doesn't work. So first of all, you have to get over yourself. Um, it, not that you can't have those feelings. Everybody has those feelings, but you have to find a place of peace where you can be accepting and you have to get to that place of compassion for the other person before you can deal with differences respectfully, which is the only way you ever get change in relationship. And we need to be able to deal with people who don't agree with us. We have a country that is completely divided and it wasn't always like this. I'm not saying people didn't always disagree because people always disagreed, but there was more of an ability to disagree and remain respectful colleagues or work together, right? We need that. And in order to do that, you have to not believe that you know what's right all the time. Doug, poor, too, too bad Doug's not in here. He's like, yeah, Rachel. <laughs> So if you're one of those people who likes to think you're right, you know, you got to take a breather, take a moment, step back. And I don't care who it is you're talking to, because whoever it is has a point of view and a point of view you've never been inside of whatever their experience or their background or their history. You don't know it. So it, a huge amount of humility is important. I think when trying to help somebody else change, because you have to, you have to, it, it's like somebody trying to lose weight because they hate their body. It doesn't work. You can't help somebody change because you dislike who they are. They're just going to resist you to stay safe, right? You have to actually appreciate something in that person and find compassion in your heart for them before you can help create the environment in which change can take place. Yeah. So energy follows thought and communication. How would you clear your own space so you can have a non-judgmental energy to open up the communication. So the question is, how do you clear your own energy? How, basically, how do you get to that place? So, I, you know, people do it. In, I'm really curious how you all get to a place of peace where you can have difficult conversations. What do you do? What works? You listen. Yeah. <laughs> Take time out and breathe slowly and deeply for a little while. That is actually very helpful. And that is straight out of the Gottman protocol. So Doug and I have written a couple of books with John and Julie Gottman. They have a tremendous amount of research on what works and what doesn't work in relationships. And one of the things that works is that when you've, they call it blowing your top, when you've really just lost it, you're angry and you're no longer rational. It happens to all of us that you actually separate that is not a time to talk to somebody because there's nothing that can be said that will work. So it, John actually recommends, because they, they studied this, because he studies everything, um, that it's even better to just distract yourself by reading a magazine than it is to sit down and consciously try to, because when you're that angry, trying to go from that to a meditative posture, unless you're a really accomplished meditator, most of us are not, um, is difficult. So literally distracting yourself from the whatever it is, is more helpful. So I think, you know, distracting yourself from your distress, deep breathing, leaving the, the area. And then if you are someone who likes meditation or energy practices of Taoism, there's a clearing practice I like that I sometimes do on my own body. That kind of thing can also be really helpful. Um, and then there's always... Changing the subject works, right? Talk, talking to someone who loves, excuse me, who loves you. 
Very helpful. Somebody else, not the person you're arguing with. Somebody else who loves you, who can give you perspective and a little love, right? Before you go back into the ring. Yeah. I've found that if I say, I know you really care about me and it's really important for me to understand what you want me to hear. So this is how I feel when you say that. Is that how you wanted me to feel? And most of the time, people don't intend us to feel hurt. And if we're here, I find that if I'm hearing it that way and I communicate it that way, it changes the energy because there's no bad, dope, no bad dog involved. Yep. No judgment. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Because the clarity of that communication is you said this, I'm not judging that. What I felt was this, that may not be what you wanted me to feel, right? It's, it's, it's not accusing them. It's not pointing the finger. I once had an, a Santa, San Francisco acupuncturist say to me, as I was saying, she was saying, eat no sugar. And I was saying, but Doug brings cookies in the house. And she said, when you point your finger, there are four fingers pointing right back at you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so what's that thing, right? When you accuse, you just, you create those barriers. Well, and we're programmed in a world of, for somebody to be right, somebody has to be wrong. Yeah. To be good, somebody has to be bad. That's right. We pick that up from childhood. And that's what our listening is when we're upset. That's right. Anyway, last question. Yeah. Let's talk about the gut brain and depression and neurotransmitters and calmness. Wow. Okay. No problem. So, um, so the research on gut health and mood, I think, is particularly interesting. So there is already a ton of research on gut health. And by gut health, I mean um, everything from your swallowing, your digestive enzymes, your stomach acid, your motility, to your microbiome, which is the big fancy word for the organisms that live in your colon primarily where they're supposed to live. Um, and they actually live all over your body, but a lot of them are in your colon. Um, and when those are healthy and balanced, your body does well when they are not balanced because you inherited compromised bacteria from your mother at birth that happens. So we have, if you look at a hunter gatherer society, their microflora are like this. Ours are like this. We introduced antibiotics in the 1950s. We've now had multiple generations since then. And we compromise and compromise and compromise. And it's not just the antibiotics. It's also the food supply. So your gut bacteria are fed by fiber. So when you eat fiber, you don't digest it and take the calories out of it. Your gut bacteria digest it and take the calories out of it. So you are feeding your gut bacteria with fiber. When you eat a non-fiber diet, they go from 100% to 20% in testing. And as soon as you eat fiber within three days, they're back up to hundred percent again. So fiber is huge. So it's what you eat and it's antibiotic exposure and it's pesticide exposure and it's, uh, other, uh, toxin exposures that compromise the gut flora. So, um, they've now done a number of, um, these are case studies, but really interesting where they've done gut trans fecal transplants. Has anybody heard of this? So you take, you take actually the gut bacteria from a healthy person, you wipe out the gut bacteria and the unhealthy person, in this case, a severely depressed or anxious person, and you replace their gut bacteria. They've actually reversed depression and anxiety in a bunch of people that way. They've also reversed obesity, diabetes, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, chronic infections. Um, that's how important your gut flora are. Now, we're not going to do fecal transplants on everybody. Um, it's a little complicated, but, um, 
But you can do lots of things that improve your gut flora. And one of the things I do as an integrative doctor, particularly with my patients with gut issues or who have autoimmune issues um, or who have issues in which we need to optimize immune function like cancer, for example, uh, or other infections, you can test, label, analyze, feed, replace. You can uh, get rid of uh, bacterial overgrowth, yeast overgrowth, parasites, et cetera, and rebalance that gut flora in a way that allows the organism to be healthier and improve immune function. Was that the question? That was gorgeous. Okay. Dr. Abrams, I'm going to close the program now. If you afterwards, if anybody wants to have a book, she'll be outside. We have so many people here that I'm going to have to ask people not to ask you questions, just let you sign your name like mad. And I'm going to come up and close the program. How incredible was that, right? Amazing. It's rare when a doctor can cover so many bases that actually touch us in our hearts and make our intuition actually stand up and listen. Gorgeous. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. You're so empowering. <laughs> I love people. I am Adria Breyer, a member of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and the chair of today's program. We thank Dr. Rachel Abrams for her comments here today. We thank our audiences here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, more than 117 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Come back soon.